0: Gracious God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Amen. What do you make of miracles? And some of you may regard it as a miracle. You made it to church this morning. I'm about to build an ark up here, I think. <laughs> miracles may be a dangerous topic to cover from an Episcopal pulpit, we are the denomination with the highest number of advanced degrees per capita. Academics tend to avoid talk of the miraculous. And this morning we have some visitors with us from Chicago in the Episcopal Church of St. Paul and the Redeemer in Hyde Park, and our visiting choir is from there. One of my seminary professors, the Reverend Roger Furlow, is a regular preacher up at St. Paul's. And I don't want the choristers or the choristers' parents to report I was spewing some nonsense about miracles from this pulpit. Still, I do need to ask, what do you make of miracles? Today's story finds a disciple named Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus, about seven miles journey from Jerusalem. Jesus comes near them, but their eyes are kept from recognizing him. And they stop in their tracks, though, when he asks, Why are you sad? They recount to him the story of Jesus' ministry, crucifixion, and the reports of the women. Notice, the guys are lost, and the women are way ahead of them. And the women say Jesus has been risen. Then this stranger opens up the scriptures for them. They encourage him to stay with them that evening, Over dinner, he takes the bread, says the blessing, breaks it, gives it to them. Then they recognize Jesus. Admittedly, this story concerns the most mundane of miracles. These lesser disciples aren't saved from a storm. Sadly, no water becomes wine. These disciples are not blind in any physical sense, yet somehow Jesus opens their eyes. We'll come back to the Emmaus Road in a moment. For now, let's talk a little bit about miracles. In a short television series on the BBC, Richard Dawkins, the famous Oxford biologist and author of the book The God Delusion, interviewed the Archbishop of Canterbury, another sometime Oxford professor, Dr. Rowan Williams. If you've ever heard an interview with Dawkins, you know that he doesn't let his interviewees get many words in edgewise. In the midst of the interview, the atheist interrupts and accuses the archbishop, saying, if you believe God got creation right in the first place and does not need to regularly intervene and bend the laws of physics, how do you reconcile that with miracles, which look to some of us like cheap conjuring tricks? Archbishop Williams responds graciously. If you view God as something outside, messing around with the works, you are in danger of the conjuring tricks model, he admits. You don't have to think that way. You can also think of a miracle as a sort of opening moment, where the underlying action of God breaks through in a fresh way. He talks of a miracle not as a suspension of the laws of nature, but as nature opening itself up to its own depths. Miracles are not where God is moving in from the outside tinkering, but rather where the surface tension breaks, and God's action, always present, bursts through. Dawkins is unconvinced. Maybe you're raising your eyebrows as well. Theologians like Rowan Williams traffic in nuance and poetry. And we don't make a lot of time for nuance and poetry these days in our society. Miracles don't square neatly. And sometimes it's easier to just move on, keep on going down that road, get to Emmaus. Sometimes, though, we're caught off guard. I believe I once saw a miracle. And before you get too excited... For those of you from Chicago, email my former professor. Know that this wasn't some cosmic level miracle. This wasn't a massive show like the incarnation or the resurrection. No laws of physics were suspended. The miracle I witnessed was mundane. If you stood next to me, you might not have agreed that a miracle occurred, but I believe it was a miracle. In 2007, I led my first pilgrimage to El Salvador from the University of California, San Diego. I've been thinking about that trip because next month I'm taking our first group from Holy Communion to the country. And this group I brought back in 2007 was tiny, just four students, and three of those students were girls. So I decided it would be a good idea to have a female co-leader. I asked my friend Lyra to come along. She and I had spent the previous year as volunteers with the Episcopal Church in Honduras, another Central American country, just next door to El Salvador. Lyra spoke Spanish pretty fluently, and she could navigate which foods were safe and what bathrooms to steer the girls toward. And so the week went largely, as you might expect. We visited the tombs of Salvadoran martyrs, we worshipped in local churches, we talked with leaders working for justice. On our second to last day, we were touring a little village, a little village of concrete homes in a place called El Maisal. These homes had been recently built by Episcopal Relief and Development for folks displaced by natural disaster. Most were still unoccupied, but we walked up to meet a woman whose family had just moved into a completed building. As our host introduced the residents, my friend Lyra's face burst into a wide smile. Her expression was mirrored in the face of the new homeowner. Lyra rushed up to give her a hug, and they both cried as they spoke. My friend stayed there for several minutes, talking with the woman, holding her little daughter, even while we walked on into the little town square. One of my students asked me, how did Lyra know that woman? When did they meet before? I said I didn't know. I remember being surprised at their interaction. It was like one of those scenes at the end of the movie, Love Actually, And they're in the airport, and the families are reunited after such a long journey, and they greet one another outside airport security with such joy. I assumed Lyra must have met her somehow. Maybe she was from Honduras, or there had to be some connection. Months later, I remembered that moment, and I happened to be up in San Francisco visiting my friend Lyra. And I I thought to ask, how did you know that woman in El Mysol? Lyra said, Mike, it's the strangest thing. I didn't know her at all. But when I saw her face, I was overcome. I felt like we were long-lost sisters. Lyra, like me, is also the child of an Episcopal priest. Like a lot of clergy kids, she's had a bit of an on-again, off-again relationship with church and the faith. But she said that moment she knew something deep, something true was happening. She recognized something divine in a stranger. A woman, a refugee, something broke through. As I I said, as miracles go, this one was pretty mundane. But even as I remember it now, I get goosebumps. I can't say that if you were standing there with some sort of scanner, you'd pick up electronic waves that prove the existence of God to Richard Dawkins. No, nothing like that. I can say that for a moment, in a dusty settlement built by Episcopalians, a little town called El Maysal, it felt like my friend's eyes were opened, and those of us nearby caught a glimpse. On some level, shouldn't every meeting of strangers be like what I just described? If we are all, each of us, created in the image and likeness of God, shouldn't we greet strangers as long-lost relatives? Jesus tells us, if you clothe the naked, feed the hungry, stand with the oppressed, you clothe, feed, and stand with me. Shouldn't every encounter with a stranger help us glimpse God and God's kingdom? I say I believe I saw a miracle in this nuanced sense. I think somehow my friend Lyra was ready to see God's presence in a stranger. Her eyes that had been kept from seeing, somehow they saw. I think somehow that stranger was ready as well. They encountered one another on a deeper level than most of us access each day. As miracles go, it's a small one. I've prayed for bigger. I've wished that a parishioner would be healed from cancer. If I had the power, I would have raised several folks who had died. Turns out we priests don't learn magic in seminary. I can't conjure a miracle at will. Much as I would like to do. But I have seen families come together and reconcile deep hurts around a hospital bed. I've, I've witnessed doctors and nurses helping a patient to die well with little pain surrounded by care. As our psalm says this morning, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his servants. I wonder whether those moments might count as a kind of miracle. I once heard the Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh talk about Jesus and the kingdom of God. And Jesus spent most of his ministry teaching about this kingdom of God, this blessed reign of justice, of peace, of love. And The Buddhist monk said Christians often get frustrating, frustrated wondering, where is God's kingdom? He said, we misunderstand Jesus' teaching. It is not that the kingdom of God is not available to us, but that we are not available to the kingdom. So what's the groundwork? What's the preparation? How can we be ready to have our eyes opened? Scholars who study the story about the road to Emmaus notice an interesting pattern in the text. It reads like our Sunday morning bulletin. First, Jesus and the disciples They read scripture together. Then they share a sacred meal. The scholars say there's a Eucharistic pattern to this story. This road to Emmaus shows that the early community was already worshiping, much like we do here at Holy Communion each and every week. First, we break open scripture. Then we break the bread. The disciples knew the Lord Jesus when they saw him doing what he had done in his life. He offered them a blessing. He offered them food. He offered himself to them. He taught them. There was a mundanity there in the mundanity. There they glimpsed Jesus. Each week, Mark and I, we tell you something scandalous, something nigh impossible to believe. The body of Christ, the bread of heaven. Each week, the worship of this church asks you to suspend your disbelief and to receive Jesus. Here in the scripture, here at the table, here in this motley crew of a congregation, we ask you to meet Jesus. We believe that this work is formative. Worship prepares us to receive God, to be ready for miracles, even mundane miracles. That's why we don't make the kids leave the service for some more entertaining Sunday school. That's why, if and when we start a children's chapel, it will look like a more interactive version of what the adults are doing in the church. That's why we're trying out a new thing like a children's choir. And we're grateful to St. Paul and Redeemer for bringing their choristers down to show us the ropes. We believe that worship forms us, readies us, as it readied Cleopas and his companions, to see Jesus. In All's Well That Ends Well, Shakespeare's clown LeFou famously muses, they say miracles are past. Do you agree? What do you make of miracles? Is there room for poetry? Is there room for nuance? Is there room for God still in this world? I hope so. I'm still looking. Whether you're on the road to Emmaus or el Mysol, or you're just headed down Delmar Boulevard later, may you be prepared to encounter the miraculous, even in the most mundane (coughs) moments. Amen.